0: A plane to the west asks the ticket clerk. Yes, sir, we have one. The Outline, World Dispatch.
1: It's Wednesday, September 27th, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today on the Dispatch, John Lagomarsino talks to Aaron Gordon about why air travel is both the best and the worst.
0: Flying is probably the most powerless we will ever feel, short of like interaction with law enforcement, maybe
1: and I talked to Gabby Del Valle about defining white supremacy. Deporting people who are primarily from
2: Latin America is a form of ethnic cleansing.
1: Here's
3: the dispatch. The future. Aaron, hi. Hey John, what's up? So, common wisdom would say that flying is a miserable experience and it's getting worse by the year. But, according to experts, and to your research, it sounds like it's actually the best it's ever been. How is this possible?
0: Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Um, I think the fundamental thing to start with is that customers and like industry experts are looking at two different things. Um, customers focus a lot on the like intangible experience of flying, what kind of amenities we get on the planes, things like that. Whereas industry experts are Spent a lot of time looking at dollars and cents, safety records, on-time performance, things that are much easier to measure.
3: So let's look at those dollars and cents. What has been the price trend in air travel recently?
0: Well, ever since uh, airlines were deregulated in, the, in uh, 1978, it's been a pretty steady trend downward for that, you know, those several decades. In real terms, so like adjusting for inflation and all that, airfare has fallen more than 50% for domestic fares.
3: What was the situation with that regulation? Why was the price of airfare regulated in the first place? Well, airlines were
0: regulated at first as a combination of safety issues uh, or perceived safety issues in flying and also um, protectionism for the incumbent airlines. Uh, basically, the for a while, the conventional wisdom was that flying wasn't safe enough for just anyone to launch an airline and, and start doing it. Um, but in the 70s, along with, you know, general trends of deregulation and pri- and the rise of private enterprises, uh, you know, a, kind of like a national ethos, um, it became a, a very popular thing to deregulate many industries and the airline industry was just one of those.
3: So until 1978, how much would you pay for a flight? In
0: 2017 dollars, a flight from New York to L.A. was legally required to cost no less than $1,600.
3: Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: a, it's a it's a huge difference. And I think this is one thing that people don't realize about flying before deregulation or even in the immediate aftermath of it, that it was just really prohibitively expensive for most Americans. And if you go back and look at actual pictures of flying then not like the viral, the fake viral ones um, that sometimes float around, uh, you'll see that the passengers are almost always middle to upper class um, white people. And there's a reason for that. It's because it was very difficult for anyone else to afford it.
3: If prices are going down, more people are able to fly. Where does our modern cynicism about flying come from?
0: We started to notice, you know, as flying became cheaper, that amenities were being cut. And it kind of became a cultural, uh, a cultural thing. Like everyone just complains about flying. Um, and, and I think like... Uh, A really good way to kind of see this is in like stand-up comedy routines, actually. is a really, really great window into this because before amenities really started to get cut in the early 90s, uh, jokes about flying were mostly safety-related, whereas in the 90s, you start to see like Seinfeldian jokes about airline food.
3: What's the deal with airplane peanuts?
0: And then after that, you know, in like probably like late 90s, early 2000s, And especially after like one of George Carlin's most famous routines on airline flying, it starts to be about like the way we're treated when flying.
2: Imagine this. Here we are, a plane full of grown human beings, many of us partially educated, and they're actually taking time out to describe the intricate workings of a belt buckle.
0: And so you kind of see this evolution of what we complain about or what we joke about to deal with, you know, the 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 various inconveniences of flying kind of evolve over time.
3: These comedy routines are a trope, but they, they obviously must've come from something though. Like what is this, what is this feeling in the shift in airline service that, that makes it such a relatable comedy routine?
0: Among the things that a, a, a American adults do, um, flying is probably the most powerless we will ever feel short of like interaction with law enforcement, maybe. Um, We lose complete control over when we can go to the bathroom or when (laughs) we can buckle our seatbelt. And I think that creates this dynamic where we're then going to complain about almost everything else that happens because we just feel like we're being treated like children.
3: So you look at these graphs over time and you see that more flights are arriving on time, less baggage is being lost, prices are declining, more people are flying. What is it about the experience, though, that makes me still feel... Like I never want to set foot on an airplane again. Every time I do it, <laughs>
0: just think like just think about what you're doing when you're flying. You you are always waiting for something. Um, whether it's you're waiting to board, you're waiting to stand in line to board, you're waiting to sit at your seat. Like the entire process is just waiting. And uh, there's actually been some research done into what what makes people complain. Like what kind of primes them for complaining. And boredom is actually one of the biggest primers for complaining. I I really think that's a a massive element to why we find flying so unpleasant.
3: You've just got tons of time to stew. Yeah, exactly. It's
0: a, it's a, you know, if you're flying cross country, that's six hours that you have to, you know, entertain yourself basically. And (laughs) I don't know that most people don't have the capacity for that, especially without cell service.
3: Aaron, thanks so much for coming on.
0: Yeah. I appreciate it, John.
3: Aaron Gordon is a freelance writer. You can find his piece about airlines at The Outline. Power.
1: Hey, Gabby. So there are a couple reasons why we're talking about white supremacy today. There was a Nazi who was punched in Seattle last week. There was this conversation that was catalyzed around protests by NFL players um, and player uh, basketball players and other professional athletes.
2: The president said on Friday that the protest is, quote, total disrespect
1: of our heritage. I don't think we need to spend too much time justifying why we're talking about white supremacy right now. But um, there were a couple news events and then there was this essay in New York magazine written by the infamous opinion haver Jonathan Chait. Um, Tell me, what about this essay caught your attention?
2: So the title of the essay is Donald Trump, White Supremacy and the Discourse of Panic. And there are two main arguments here, one of which is that Donald Trump is not a white supremacist. He may be a racist, but he's not a white supremacist because white supremacists are people who explicitly advocate for white power. The second argument is that when leftists, and it's always leftists and never liberals, call people white supremacists and expand the category of who is considered a white supremacist, the method here, Chait says, is to panic liberals into abandoning liberalism. So he turns this conversation of white supremacy, what it is and who is complicit in it, into a defense of liberalism and really a defense of sensible liberals and nice
1: white people who are not racist. Okay, how is... That how What liberalism is he talking about? What liberal values are people supposedly abandoning?
2: So he has a lot of issues with people punching Nazis because that is a stifling of their free speech. So the Nazi getting punched in Seattle and Richard Spencer getting punched in D.C. are not examples of people resisting ideological violence with physical violence, but instead of people stifling white supremacists repugnant but still— allowable
1: political expression. So how should we be defining white supremacists? Like, should we be defining that really narrowly? I think
2: I'm not going to disagree with the fact that we should identify the different white supremacist groups based on their distinctions. Like, some of them hate black people more than they hate Jewish people. The Daily Stormer has a style guide where they say that everything needs to be blamed on the Jews all the time. And, like, that's worth pointing out, but... The definition of white supremacy, I think, should be broad enough to encompass not only people who are advocating for overt white domination, but also people who are advocating for policies that hurt people of color, but are disguised through the language of personal choice or freedom. Like, Ronald Reagan wasn't necessarily advocating for white dominance when he reduced welfare and made allusions to welfare queens, but that was obviously a racist policy and a racist way of framing it. And the people that it affected were people of color primarily. So I don't think Chait would call Ronald Reagan a white supremacist, but you can't deny that these are policies that harm people
1: of color more than they harm white people. This does seem to come back to the fact that some people... Don't think about racism as a system and don't think about the fact that if you are defending systemic racism or upholding a tradition that um, has the effect of hurting people of color, that that makes you a racist. Like some people would say, yes, this thing you're doing is racist or like this person who has consistently upheld this racist system is racist. Um, People seem to have a really hard time wrapping their heads around that idea.
2: I think people are more insulted by being called racist than they are by actual racism sometimes.
1: What about the argument that Trump is or is not a white supremacist?
2: I don't think that Trump needs to be wearing a Klan hood or something for people to realize that the policies that he has been advocating and talking about since before the since before he was president are fundamentally white supremacist policies. Deporting people who are primarily from Latin America is a form of ethnic cleansing, not in the same way as killing those people, not in the same way as genocide, but it is ridding the country of a certain demographic. And preventing people from the Middle East from traveling to the United States
1: simply because they're from the Middle East
2: is a racist policy.
1: For anyone who's interested in... The argument that Trump is a white supremacist, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote this piece for The Atlantic called The First White President that basically is all about that case. Chait has an
2: issue with that, too, actually. Um, You're kidding. (laughs) uh, He mentions it to introduce the fact that the parameters for who is a white supremacist are widening. And really the ultimate argument here is if they're calling Trump a white supremacist now and he isn't one, how long until they call us white supremacists? And we're not white supremacists either. So he just has this really obvious anxiety about being called a racist. He's so afraid that he is going to be the next person to be called a racist. And that's what really shines through here. This really myopic viewpoint that when people talk about racism, it really hurts me, Jonathan Chate.
1: Gabby Del Valle is staff writer here at the Outline. Thank you, Gabby. Thanks, Adrian. That's it for the Dispatch. Remember to subscribe and check out our other podcasts. You can find them all at theoutline.com/podcasts. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Thank you for listening. We'll have more stories tomorrow.